Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 24. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that come from his lips. How can this be? they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And at his name, all oppression shall cease. These words have been a lightning rod for this hymn since 1847. In the original poem, the words read, The Redeemer has broken every bond. The earth is free and heaven is open. He sees a brother where there was only a slave. Love unites those whom iron had chained. In 1847, when the poetry of Placide Capot was set to music by Adolphe Adam, and then in 1855, when the song was translated into English by Unitarian minister John Sullivan Dwight, there was still a great deal of debate in the church about whether or not slaves had souls, women also, for that matter. At the time of composition in Europe, we learned, there was a growing unrest over the unjust monarchies and economic exploitation, while in the U.S., a different unrest was brewing. That year, Abraham Lincoln lost his bid to represent Illinois as a United States senator. The developing Kansas Territory was opening up, and the nation was still very much split between pro-slavery and abolitionist ideologies. Pro-slavery groups were moving strategically to make certain that the government of Kansas would be sympathetic to the side of slave owners, and abolitionists were trying to win hearts and minds to end chattel slavery in the United States, or at least specific portions of the United States. And when Dwight read the words of Cantique de Noel, he was moved by this third verse particularly. The same verse that drew him to give us the English translation of this beautiful song also happens to be the lyrics that prevented the song from gaining wider acceptance for many, many years. The concept of someone who could be bought and sold as property being human, being an equal, 
Well, if that happened to be true, that that would mean that the chattel slave trade was evil, perpetrated against whole races of people and against the God in whose image they were made. And for those who earn their livelihoods on the scarred and broken backs of enslaved people, well, those verses about chains being broken were just not going to play in the churches that they faithfully attended. The same churches that justified the practice of owning other human beings because the term slavery was used in the holy word of God. Never mind the fact that God brought the powerful Egyptian empire to its knees with plagues for harshly enslaving God's beloved covenant people. Even today, these lyrics aren't always included in arrangements of O Holy Night. Maybe it's too much of a drag to bring freedom from oppression and slavery into the story of Jesus' birth. It really puts a damper on the sweet baby Lord, right? Even as we encountered O Holy Night during worship services during this season, whether it's the contemporary or the traditional service, did you notice that these words have not been included? I'm sure it's not an intentional slip, but many arrangements just conveniently drop this verse. But this story of violent oppression absolutely is a part of the birth narrative of Jesus. It's a heartbreaking part. And what we're about to see is the birth of Jesus didn't cause all oppression to immediately cease. And that takes us to our first lesson this morning. From the time he was born, oppressors have felt threatened by Jesus. From the time he was born, oppressors have felt threatened by Jesus. This is from Matthew chapter 2. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent the soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. It's estimated that up to 32 boys under the age of two were killed in and around Bethlehem as a result of Herod's paranoid demand. That's based on population records from around that time, and we can believe that they're fairly accurate since Joseph did travel to Bethlehem specifically for a census. That's maybe 32 boys murdered by the soldiers of a king simply for matching the description. Herod wasn't enacting justice against these babies. He was scared of being replaced. This client king of Judea for the Roman occupation was willing to kill the children of his citizens, not as a punishment for some sort of criminal misdeed, but just because one of them might grow up to unseat Herod from his place of power and privilege. The very thought of someone challenging his right to rule drove Herod to vicious acts, and they weren't limited to what we often refer to as the slaughter of the innocents in this story. Even the architecture that Herod left behind highlights the brutal extent to which he would go to preserve his right to be the king of Judea. It highlights his paranoid delusion. And Jesus himself, a child under the age of two at that time, didn't stop this nightmarish violence. God the Father didn't prevent the devastation to these families. 
I mean, I suppose another reminder that you probably shouldn't slaughter 30-some toddlers and infants could have helped, but if Herod didn't already know that, then it probably wasn't a lack of information or education that led him to cause mass death. Because of a vision, the life of Jesus was preserved so he wouldn't be murdered by Rome that day, but no sea opened up to swallow the soldiers who perpetrated the attack. No plague visited Herod's house to move him towards a change of heart. God didn't stop it. Herod was free to use his free will to carry out an evil act, shedding blood, breaking hearts, traumatizing a community. It was open rebellion against God. It was sin. It was pride. It was his power and privilege oppressing people, a whole group of people, not for anything that they've done, but simply for who they are, and the birth of Jesus didn't stop it. Tragically, the birth of Jesus may have triggered the whole chain of events, but it didn't cause them. That was still a choice, and it was an evil choice. Life is so horribly devalued. Not just at a time when Herod can casually give the order to kill a packed nursery full of babies. We flagrantly devalue life today. How? When I was in Army basic training, and granted, I didn't make it all the way through Army basic training, but I got to go through basic rifle marksmanship, and we'd get into foxholes with our M16A2 rifles and aim at faceless Kevlar targets that would pop up for just a moment, giving us a very specific amount of time, a short window to be able to hit the required amount of targets in that specific time. We were taught how to aim with precision. We were taught how to act with speed and urgency but we were very intentionally not taught to look at anything on the other side of that scope as a person, a human being, someone's child, someone's sibling, someone's parent. And I get that. In military conflict, there isn't a lot of time in the heat of battle to engage in moral philosophy, which is actually probably one of the reasons why I would have made a terrible soldier. The purposes for de-emphasizing the humanity of another in battle can be pretty obvious. But we end up doing that in a lot of other ways in some other settings, too. I remember back in my fraternity days when some of the guys would drink a little too much and they would start to build up some liquid muscle. They would start to become a whole lot tougher in their minds because they weren't thinking soberly. They'd end up picking fights with people for no other reason than they lost the capacity to see the person across from them with rationality. Have you ever noticed that so many of our interactions online feel like that? It's not liquid muscle, but there's something about not having to see someone's face, not having to know their life story, not having to deal with the immediate consequences of writing checks that our bodies can't cash, and we start to feel a little internet invincible. There are a lot of people who have become far too comfortable demeaning and dehumanizing folks on the other side of a conversation because they can't see the face, the family, the frailties of someone who doesn't align with their self-built echo chamber. And so that other person is obviously ignorant, out of touch, perhaps evil, and over time, less and less worthy of dignity and respect. Dehumanized. Simply a a Kevlar target popping up on the social media horizon for a brief moment, specifically there so I can shoot them down with precision and urgency. Or maybe we've been told by people we trust that we don't have to treat other people with respect and dignity because they have chosen to align themselves with what is evil and wrong, and so we can relegate them to the pile of condemned souls who cannot see the light of our side. And I'll let you in on something really important, though. 
Scripture gives us liberty to not subject ourselves to abuse or evil at the hands of people who would treat us cruelly, but we still don't get to dehumanize those who dehumanize us. As comforting and tempting as that may be, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus that would experience some persecution. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers of this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. When people perpetrate evil oppression, or when people are complicit with systems of oppression, it's a trap. It's not the responsibility of the oppressed to free the oppressors from the grip of that evil, but that grip is not undone by continuing a cycle of never-ending dehumanizing of others. I wish the church throughout history could stand out as a beacon of justice and equality, and there are seasons in the history where the courageous of the church have stood against injustice and helped bring an awakening of conscience that led to great wrongs being made right. But I also know that so many of us are just as susceptible to devaluing those who differ from us, to dehumanizing, to finding ourselves okay with the oppression that deems another life less worthy because it's more convenient for me. And it's easy for me to look the other way. Something as simple as the brand of clothing I wear or the type of phone that I carry in my pocket reminds me that I made choices to devalue other lives for my convenience. And even with my desire to follow Christ fully in every area of my life, I know that in the name of Jesus, my acts of oppression have not yet fully ceased. And when the preachers get too hung up on matters like this, there's often a call to stick to the gospel. You're meddling, preachers. Stick to the gospel. And so in the words of Jesus, here's why this is an important part of the gospel. Our second lesson is this. If it's not good news for the oppressed, it's not the good news of Jesus. If it's not good news for the oppressed, it's not the good news of Jesus. Jesus is teaching here from the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. The time of the Lord's favor has come. This is the part that really inspired the whole Advent series. It's also the part that I enjoy preaching the least. There are times when I try to convince God to let me out of stuff. It's not the uh, devout type of dedication that Jesus shows in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it's more like Luke Skywalker whining to his uncle that he wanted to go pick up power converters at Tosh Station. But Jesus, what if they don't like me? And for this one, I remind, I'm reminded that on the other side of preaching this particular sermon, Jesus' listeners actually tried to throw him off a cliff. And so that makes my whining seem extra pathetic. So Jesus had been gaining fame and notoriety. This was fairly early in his ministry. He had been baptized, went into the wilderness to face temptation and to fast. He had done some miracles in the area, and he was gaining some significant notoriety. There was some buzz developing about Jesus, and he was probably in his hometown preaching at the synagogue where he likely attended when he was growing up. And so the congregation knew this guy. He was a local. They knew his folks. He was about to make his hometown debut, and expectations were properly high. This was going to be good. Jesus was invited to take and read from the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned to a specific passage, 
And Isaiah was a great prophet. He talked a lot about God delivering the Hebrew people from occupation and exile in a previous time. And I'm imagining that they were thinking, I bet Jesus is going to talk about how God is going to set us free from the occupation and exile that we're experiencing now because that was a pretty big deal in the minds of the listeners at the time. So let's hear what Jesus says. And he starts saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. And I can imagine the congregation thinking, yeah, Jesus, we're poor, working class Nazareth, that's us, keep it coming. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. Okay, so we're the captives, right? Because we're occupied by Rome, we're the ones who are going to be released. The blind will see. I mean, Simon over there is having a harder time reading the scrolls these days, but that really doesn't apply to us much. What does that have to do with the rest of us, Jesus? That the oppressed will be set free. I think that's us. I'm pretty sure we're the good guys in this story. We're the children of Abraham. I mostly hope he sets us free in time for lunch and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I don't know how that's possible. Jesus didn't talk about my concern. For our information, good news is synonymous with gospel. Those terms can be used interchangeably, good news and gospel. So Jesus read from a passage that specifically names some of the most vulnerable people of Isaiah's time, the most likely to become victims, the most likely to suffer when bad times become even worse. And Jesus, like Isaiah when connected with the Spirit of God, saw that the most vulnerable people were worthy of his first recorded sermon, worthy of his time in ministry, worthy of being born into flesh like theirs, and ultimately worthy of his death as a sacrifice on their behalf. When Pharisees were calling out Jesus for his choice of company, Jesus responded rather pointedly, when healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Why did Jesus want to share good news with the poor? Why didn't Jesus say everyone? The poor were most vulnerable to oppression and exploitation. Who needs release except the captive? Who else needs sight but the blind? Who needs freedom more than the oppressed? Jesus calls out inequality and injustice. And the congregation of that synagogue in Nazareth was really hoping that they were the victims in this story. And really, some of them must have been. Some of them must have been. But I'm going to jump ahead for a second in this scripture and move along to verse 23. Jesus said, you will undoubtedly quote me the proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Certainly, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and the severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, the widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, the Syrian. And when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. Now, there are a few ways to read this passage. One is to recognize that the people of Nazareth were going to discount the ministry of Jesus because they were too familiar with his human nature, and they struggled to trust him as Lord and Savior, as the Messiah. One has to do with Jesus acknowledging that the benefit of his ministry will stretch beyond the boundaries of Israel's ethnic and geographical borders. Both of these things would certainly rile up the crowd. But there's another reading. 
Jesus is going to deliver justice. And we sometimes imagine, especially those of us who have been coddled in privilege for a good portion of our lives, sometimes we only picture ourselves as the victims in the lesson. We put ourselves in the role of the poor, the captive, the blind, and oppressed because we want recovery and freedom, the kind that Jesus offers. And it's pretty easy to see what Jesus says here as metaphorical if it suits our inclinations. But sometimes we're the ones getting called out. And we get pretty upset at the messenger because it's not my fault. It can't be. I'm a good person. I didn't do anything wrong. I haven't owned a slave. I'm not prejudiced. I've never been violent against anyone. It's them. It's them who need to quit acting out, and then maybe bad things won't happen. Just do what you're told and don't break the law. Just get on the ground and without fighting. Just wear your mask without complaining. And if we justify dehumanizing other people made in the image of God, it could be that we're not playing the role in Jesus' sermon that we thought we were. It could be that maybe we're not the victims of the story. Maybe we're Pharaoh. Maybe we're Herod. Maybe we're Pilate. Maybe we're the prodigal's older brother. Maybe we're the Pharisee. And maybe oppression won't cease unless we repent of the ways that we justify dehumanizing others for our comfort and our convenience. Our third lesson this morning is this. Christ's followers join with Jesus in breaking the chains of injustice. Christ's followers joined with Jesus in breaking the chains of injustice. Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. Scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. One of my favorite cheapo carnival prizes when I was growing up were finger cuffs. They were like a a woven tube where you put your index finger from each hand inside this pointy cylinder and you would push them right up to this pointy woven edge and once your finger was securely placed inside the cylinder, you would quickly discover that the more you fought to get out of this thing, the tighter the cylinder became. If you tried to pull your hands apart, the weave would tighten its grip on your fingers so that you you were trapped indefinitely until you either cut the things off or you figured out its secret. The secret is this, it's when you stop struggling and fighting that the trap releases. And with gentle movement, your hands are released from the bonds of the woven confines. I don't have answers for how to solve the issues of injustice and oppression in America or in the world today. I'd love to have some answers, but some of our battles over what equality, fairness, opportunity, and access looks like in our nation, even just in my lifetime, don't seem to be letting up. But I do know that Jesus is the embodiment of perfect love. Jesus is the incarnation of God's justice and humanity's penchant for rebellion against it. I know that our God could have solved the issues of injustice by sending a cataclysmic disaster to wipe out all those who perpetrate oppression and who devalue the divine image bearers for selfish purposes. But instead, God entered into the world in fragile vulnerability, surrendering the rights and glory of heaven's ceaseless praise so we might know and witness true love and humanity. And God has empowered us to be transformed by that love. 
And it can be cataclysmic for those parts in us that are overly proud or insecure, that need to believe we're superior to others, that like to dwell in the blissful ignorance of complicity, but it ultimately restores the likeness of Christ in us and leads to full, abundant, and eternal life that is known for its love. We can fight against it. We can tear down others individually or systematically and treat the life that God has gifted to others as a trifle that we disregard. Or we can stop our fighting. We cease our rebellion and find that the trap has been loosened for us as we seek to loosen the bonds that hold others. And may God give us grace to see the spark of divine image in one another, to not fight against it, but to fight for that image to shine through. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we pray that your spirit would give us a right estimation of who we are. God, when we hear the words of your scripture, to know that your word is given so that all of us would be set free, but maybe not in the ways that we imagine. God, we pray, as the song proclaims, that at the name of Jesus, all oppression would cease. And where it lives in us, may the name of Jesus put that oppression to death. Where we are witnesses of oppression. Lord, call us to stand for your justice. Where we see the harm wrongs being perpetrated against those created in your image. Help us to love boldly. God, we know that as Christ has offered good news to this world, it is good news for all of us, but it must be good news for those who have been marginalized and cast aside. So help us to keep our eyes on those who have not yet experienced the fullness of life that you have in store for those whom you love. We offer ourselves in your service in this way, with grateful hearts, in the powerful name of Christ who sets us free. Amen.